Well, good morning, Vox. I'm grateful to open up scripture with you in this community this morning, but perhaps more importantly, I am grateful to be in an air-conditioned building with y'all this morning. Hallelujah. Um, So quick disclaimer. Um, So while my everyday work requires me to speak in a lot of spaces, typically in in front of a lot of people, I often get a little nervous when offering a homily. And it's not because of the public speaking piece of it um, that typically unnerves me, but perhaps it's the very deep-seated PK, for those of you who don't know, that's pastor's kid, Gene, that that I begin to kind of sort of question my qualifications for sitting in this chair. But this morning I was reminded that it's not the theological or seminary credentials that y'all are seeking. Um, or that will even inform my words, but rather my willingness to be vulnerable and hold space, perhaps even invite y'all to bear witness to some of the reflections, some of the revelation, perhaps even some of the redefining of my understanding of God and my purpose and his grace. And so this morning, let's pretend that this sanctuary is actually my living room. I'm actually not too far in Cherrywood, and I'm inviting y'all over for some tea, chai to be exact, um, for a, perhaps just for us to catch up for this week and for us to explore in the spirit and perhaps get some inspiration for each of our reflections this week. How does that sound? Yeah, great. great. So in this shared experience, I ask each of us to consider the question you see before you on the screen. What makes you trust someone? What makes you even trust me this morning to have a microphone in front of me? What qualities or evidence do you need to trust someone? And so just take a few minutes, if you feel comfortable, outside of your internal exploration, turn to your neighbor and discuss what it takes to trust someone. All right. Anyone willing to share their reflections or observations? One or a couple of words. What, is, what does it take to trust someone? Or what helps you abide in a state of trust? Shared interest. It's a good one. Anyone else? Feeling safe. Vulnerability and specifically eye contact. Like that. But not too much eye contact. Thank you for that clarification. I think that's a good one. All right, so I'd like to suggest that all of the words or words that we've conjured up are in fact perhaps a vehicle for spiritual growth. I want to propose that the that that trust of God's word, God's promises, is perhaps the bedrock of our faith. Trust gives us freedom to not only rely on our limited understanding of circumstances or the acute anxieties, doubts, and pains that often surround the situation in front of us. A few years back, my mother was interviewed for a magazine for Valentine's Day. They'd asked couples who had been married for varied amounts of time for advice on love. At the time, my parents had been married for 38 years, but this Friday, it'll be 44 years. And while my mother said, in response to what informed their stamina as a couple, um, continues, I think, to be what walks them in love and perhaps keeps her um, in constant relationship with my father. And these are the words that she said that have stayed with me for years. She said, you build a memorial of what the other person did to demonstrate their love over the years. And so even in the times that you're upset with them, you realize it trumps the annoyances. And it's the vehicle you use to trust them in the midst of chaos and perhaps disappointment. You reflect on the treasure trove of memories that upholds the promise that you've made to one another. 
Now, I've never been married, but I do know my father. And as amazing of a man, partner, father, lawyer, community leader he is, I also know he can be quite annoying, perhaps frustrating, <laughs> not perfect. And as a witness to my parents' love and marriage, I recognize that at the core of their friendship and partnership, they are promise keepers. Their promise to center God in all they do, their promise to move from a place of love, their promise to forgive, their promise to share responsibility. And when there, there have been circumstances throughout their marriage that have disrupted joy, clouded peace, or severed connection, I believe they have trusted the promise to steady their hearts and their minds. And in today's scripture, through the Psalms, we are offered a similar consideration in our relationship with God. It reads, thank God, pray to him by name, tell everyone you meet what he has done, sing him songs, belt out hymns, translate his wonders into music, honor his holy name with hallelujahs. You who seek God live a happy life. But it's these words that really caught my attention this week. Keep your eyes open for God, watch for his works, be alert for signs of his presence. Remember the world of wonders he has made, his miracles and the verdicts he's rendered. I think that's ultimately what my mother was speaking about in that article, to remember the world of wonders. Now, this isn't a practice of adoration to remind God of his own omnipotence or power and abilities. I think it's actually instruction to remind us of his grace, his consistency, and his faithfulness. Even when the present circumstances, context, and conditions surrounding us tell a different story. Time and again, I found that the greatest anecdote to anxiety is to consistently remind ourselves of the unshakable promises we have in God's word. When a circumstance suddenly threatens our peace, when we, we can be ready to push it back and cut it down with truth. But it's the seeking of the truth. It's the pursuit of God's word in the midst that can be tiresome, complex, frustrating, and at times feel, quite frankly, impossible. About a month ago, I was acutely in this space of trying to hear God, believe his promises, and I thought me tapping into a daily rhythm that reminded me of God's love and presence would be the inspiration I needed. At the beginning of the pandemic, my sister had introduced me to this podcast called The First 15. And the premise is that you spend the first 15 minutes of your day in this practice of meditation and prayer. And on this particular day, I listened to an episode called Trust in God's Promises. So I want you to take a listen. In today's podcast, we're going deeper into the place of trust, seeking to open up more of our hearts to our good and loving Father so we can experience more of his promises moment by moment. Without trust, we'll miss out on so many of the gifts God wants to give us every day. Without trust, our hearts will be closed off to the fullness of what this life has to offer us. May we, as God's children, trust him more fully today in response to his trustworthiness. Welcome to the First 15 Podcast. The Bible constantly gives us an image to visualize when thinking about the character of God. Psalm 18.2 says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take my refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. 2 Samuel 22.32 says, For who is God but the Lord? 
and who is a rock except our God? I love how the Lord chooses to use creation to tell us of the invisible attributes of his nature. To our eyes, rocks are unchanging, steady, and stable. Generations of men come and go, but rocks stay visually the same. So it is with our God. 1 Kings 8.56 says, Blessed be the Lord, who has given rest to his people. As you're listening to that, you know, isn't that lovely? Doesn't it sound so simple? What a calm voice to carry us into a blissful faith and trust. Well, if those aren't the feelings that surface while listening to that clip, you are not alone. Because on that day, those first 15 minutes enraged me. First stop, my first observation was, stop whispering. Aren't you in a recording studio? Speak up. But most importantly, it's just not that simple. Why are you asking me to sift through my frustration, be patient and ignore my doubts when everything in front of me and beside me feels contrary to the promises God has made me? God has made us, as his made us as his people. It not only feels unfair in this moment, it feels quite impossible to see. This summer, as a collective, we have navigated the headlines you see before you. Several mass shootings, the stories of migrant workers being displaced at the border, housing crisis, the dismantling of affirmative action, the undoing of LGBTQA rights, the erosion of truth in schools and the devastation of climate change in Hawaii, Florida, and right here in the oven we now call Austin, Texas. <laughs> a congressional hearing let us, letting us know that aliens exist. Now, I have no biblical or spiritual guidance on that one for you. You'll have to wait till next Sunday from hear from Jenna or Waylon or Christopher. <laughs> um, oh, and if you didn't hear, there's also a leprosy outbreak in Florida. And while that feels very on brand for the state of Florida, um, that's some real biblical stuff, right? So consciously and unconsciously, our mind, our bodies, our spirits are grappling with harsh realities of life, both past, both present and future. And if you're like me, you have plans, you have ideas, you have dreams that are starting to feel distant, and in some cases, perhaps delusional. Like, I believe God has promised me partnership, marriage, and a 12-year-old me translated that to God will make a way for me to be married to Terry Henry, my favorite soccer player, by the time I'm 25. And yet here I am awaiting my WAG status. If you don't know what WAG means, it means wife of a professional athlete. And as he gets older and continues to not know that I exist, the reality of that being my truth is setting in. But as we're all confronted with the daily traumas and triggers of living in this world, in this country, at this time, we are left to contend with the complexities of moving and purpose while being paralyzed with uncertainty and trusting God's promises while overwhelmed by counter-narratives that have his word, his promise, feeling invisible, if not irrelevant. So before we dive deeper into what God says of his promises and the evidence that, that he is a promise keeper, Let's remind ourselves of what promise actually means. Perhaps that can offer something uh, insightful. Promise means a declaration or assurance that one will do a particular thing or that a particular thing will happen. It's to assure someone that you will definitely do, give, or arrange. And I love this definition because I think it feels the closest to the experience of divine promise. To give good grounds for expecting ground for expectation of success, improvement, or excellence. And isn't that what promise feels like? 
Isn't that ultimately what God has offered us when in his presence? Expectation, perhaps anticipation. And anticipation requires trust. It requires precedent and belief that it will come to pass, that it will work out, that it will be delivered. And so the first question I put before you this morning, Vox, is what might a spirit of anticipation look like for us in this season? Last month, I went on an epic trip, a rather an adventure, to Bozeman, Montana. One of my dear friends was celebrating her 40th birthday, a new book, and the arrival of her baby boy. So she invited four of her friends from California and Texas to join her in the beautiful mountain country. But the choice of Montana was poetically symbolic for how this middle-of-nowhere state has served in some ways as her own promised land. We can go back to the slide before. She's the author of a new book called Joy Hunter, which recounts her nearly seven-year heartbreaking journey to motherhood, reclaiming of her selfhood and her unapologetic choice to choose joy and peace over others' opinion. In some ways, this trip served as an opportunity for me and three of her other friends to witness the ways God has fulfilled his promises, both in space and spirit. The whole trip was a metaphor for this idea of what does it look like to pursue God's promises, or perhaps hunt for joy in the midst. So while we went up to celebrate her incredible decades on Earth, her four incredible decades on Earth, that had spawned two books, a TED Talk, partnerships with the NFL, NBA, and FaceTime with Oprah, the celebration in this season of life was honoring a dream deferred, the birth of this miracle baby boy who they named Bridger, after the mountain range that had served as her and her husband's rainbow in the midst of storms. All right, so back to the trip. We were invited to spend three glorious days on 18 acres of private land. Now, if you need context, that's all of New York City. But imagine New York with untouched land and cattle and mountains. And on day one, we were thrusted into what I can only describe as adult summer camp. I think we have a few visuals for you. In six hours, I ziplined through 400 feet treetops, mountain bikes through the hills, and horse rode in the rain. But throughout the trip, I and we were tested. We had to trust the decoration that these experts, hosts, and guides offered us safety, and that our safety would be intact throughout this journey. And on the other side of navigating our way through unsettling or unfamiliar spaces was beauty, joy, and peace. Now, while I'm not necessarily afraid of heights, I do believe that God wanted us, that if God wanted us to scale mountains or hang off wires or jump from irrational heights, he would have equipped us with the physical traits to do so. <laughs> so I feel like I'm just walking in literal and figurative purpose when I obediently keep my feet on the ground. <laughs> But about two hours after arriving on this unfamiliar land, I was asked to trust some metal wire, a couple of 19-year-old girls employed for the summer, and my and the birthday girl who kept telling me, it's fine, I've done it a million times. Mind you, I forgot to share that part of her resume includes an impressive 33-day run on the competition show Survivor. So after mastering our mini zipline tutorial um, and surviving the first baby course, we got to the highest of the nine courses. And well, as soon as I stepped up to the ledge, my trust that was already faulty was further disrupted by the view, and in my in estimation, the evidence of my premature death. Well, let me just let y'all enjoy this video of me in the moment. And the commentary that comes with it. It's going to feel so good. 
You're brave. Push off. Don't You're just courageous. Fall. Just, just step off and go, girl. Throw those legs in there and go. Don't take that the wrong way. Oh my god. Yes. Push off. You can do hard Don't things. Scare you. You're so good. No. No, it will not. It's gonna feel smooth just like the last one did. It's not gonna like All right, I will keep yeah, gonna I close my eyes. Yeah. Of course. No, yeah. It's better open. Oh my god. Why am I doing this? Because you love Alexis. It's she got one already. <laughs> Go, girl. This is it. It's going to be smooth, like just like the last. There's no drop. There's no nothing. It's just the way it optically looks. It's going to just be smooth like peanut butter. The affordable. Woo! So what that video doesn't show is that even though I managed to move my legs off the ledge and into the air, by the time I got to the end of the course, my momentum didn't carry me all the way to the platform. And I ended up getting stuck. So even though I managed to eventually move from a place of trust, even open my eyes to enjoy the scenery, there was literally bumps along the way. As I was dangling nearly 700 feet in the air, trying not to look down, trying not to regret the day I met Alexis, trying not to <laughs> mourn the fact that Terry Henry would never know my name, I had to trust a promise in the midst. Trust that that 19-year-old was strong enough to scale her way out to me, pull us both into the platform, and abide in the promise that on the other side of acute fear and anxiety was beauty and safety. But it's interesting because the Hebrew language has no word that corresponds to promise. In the Old Testament scripture, we find words like word or speak and say that are used instead of promise. In other words, God's word itself is the same as promise. Frederick William Krumacher said it like this, God's promises are virtually obligations that he imposes upon himself. The word promise appears more than 100 times in the scripture. 1,000 promises apparently are listed. And in the essay, Promise and Fulfillment, Believing the Promises of God by Victor Knowles, he offers us some data points that perhaps can serve as comfort to us more rational, analytical people. I heard some of y'all laugh when she said, it's just the way it optically looks. I'm like, yeah, that's why I don't want to go. <laughs> and so perhaps for those of us that need some data points, some analysis, right, here's some reminders. The promises are upheld by God's oath. It is impossible for God to lie. The promises of God were always fulfilled on schedule. God's timing is always perfect. God's wonderful promises are obtained through patience. Abraham had to wait many years before realizing the fulfillment. God has promised his glorious kingdom. The promises are always kept by faith. And finally, God's promises are described as exceeding great and precious. And I love that use of that word. Now, a lot of good these biblical promises did me while I was trying to remember if my life insurance policy gave my sister or brother first dibs on my Janet Jackson signed album. But in the present, what I think Victor offers us is what my mom called a memorial, perhaps an archive that reminds us there's precedent, there's evidence, there's assurance that God has not abandoned us. And despite sometimes dangling from the high heights of fear, anxiety, pain, depression, doubt, our promises can endure perhaps taking new form and taking place in unexpected time. And so the next inquiry I encourage us to explore is 
What memory bank, what precedent will you reflect on in order to stay close to God's promises? So later on in the trip, the next day in fact, we were invited on what we were told was a 10-mile, six-hour hike. Now, granted, that in itself is a tall order, but we were adventurous girls, and again, we were celebrating an epic birthday of a person who's gone to Antarctica, been on Survivor, spoken in locker rooms of professional athletes, and arguably has done very intimidated things. But from the jump, we realized that, that, was going to be steady, that this was going to be a steady workout. Our first clue should have been that the cowgirls and cowboys we were with the day before emphatically told us that they would never venture to do this hike we were doing. But what a gift to be invited out in God's most beautiful creation. And it started out all fun and games, but at some point, when our Apple Watches told us we were already four miles in, our trusty guide, Ken, kept telling us we were not even halfway there. In fact, we hadn't even begun the real ascent. To our dismay, we began to doubt that this beautiful hike was, a caref- as, was as carefree as we had thought. But Ken, and look at that face, doesn't he look trustworthy? Doesn't he look like he knows what he's doing? He's got the outfit. But Ken kept directing us, giving us little droplets of hope, and providing enough context for, from his past excursions that we felt like we could trust his promise to keep us safe and get us to the promised land, or in this case, the top of this impossibly tall mountain. He say, the steep climb starts now, or watch out for that hole, or y'all go slow now, or tell us when he thought it'd be safer for us to use the walking sticks when we crossed water. It's not too much longer. I promise you the view of the lake is worth it. But despite this seasoned, tried-and-true expert leading the way, there are multiple moments throughout the eight hours that we doubted Ken and the delivery of this promise. Not only was this hike more brutally, brutally physical than we anticipated, but the time frame we had in our mind turned out not to be our reality. In fact, we were enduring a seven-and-a-half-mile climb up and down, close to four-and-a-half hours in the heat, and then eventually in the snow. At one time, the birthday girl turned to all of us after Ken, for the third time, said, and now the real hard, steep part begins. <laughs> and each time, I had an inner dialogue of what, well, what the heck was the last 15 minutes? Alexis looked at each of us in the eye and said, do we want to keep going? And I'm not going to lie, I was deeply hoping someone would say no. <laughs> Because I wasn't going to say it, but I would be the first one to turn us around. And we all looked up, trying to conjure up the hope and the anticipation of what would be on the other side of that mountain, despite everything around us showing us that our journey was not over, that there was more pain ahead and our bodies would still have to endure. The first person to respond was Franny, who ultimately spoke up for each of us, and she said, we've come this far, and we trust you, Ken. Those words meant a lot, because in some ways, we had to lean on Franny's faith and anchor our next steps from a place of trust and hope. And the funny part was, I think in the moment, we were all struggling to see or even believe the promise. The idea of a lake sitting on top of a mountain didn't even make logical or geographical sense to me. In some ways, it didn't seem like we could trust Ken, that the precedent didn't feel near. And if you see this photo and the yellow circle, that's, that's me in the back, I decided that at that point, my ankles were not worth the view, so I was going to take my time. But shortly after that picture was taken, a promise, as promised, we summited to the top of the mountain, past the snow and ice, to arrive at our promised land that afternoon. 
There it was, the clearest, most beautiful lake I'd ever seen. And I think there's a little video that shows it. We all realized standing up there was that the promise was always true. It was just a journey that took different form. And each step of the way, we had to renew our minds, we had to recalibrate our understanding, and we had to re-engage in our practice of trust. Vox, how might we renew our mind to God's truth, God's promises, even when the evidence is contrary? Back in our reading for today, the Psalms offer it to us like this this particular line that I've been holding true and near this week. And God confirmed his promise. I believe that is what we are ultimately seeking in the small, is the small confirmations, affirmations that God is a promise keeper. But it's not easy. In fact, like our, heart, our hike, it's arduous. It's sometimes sweaty, sometimes painful. And I know for me, as a, with a posture as a human who's trying to walk in purpose, it sometimes feels far or fleeting or even futile. As our country navigates the ongoing pursuit of civil rights and healing from traumas and triggers of oppressive systems, our liberation feels really far away some days. And the lack of care for those of us walking in melanated bodies in this country feels acute. I struggle on the weekly to hear and see God's truth of radical love and his promise of liberation and freedom. But it's words like these from Dante Stewart, an author and uh, theological scholar, that I think can serve to reorient us to the truth of God and his undeterred promise keeping. And for me, in those days where I'm reading the headlines and my work in, in racial justice feels futile and fleeting, it's these words that serve as a bomb. The hope was in the struggle. God was in the hope, and these bodies will not always suffer. These bodies will not always tremble. These bodies will live. I saw these beautiful black bodies. To fail, to create, to live, and to love, this is the stuff of hope. It is not assent to nostalgia or myths or lies. It is the audacious belief that one's body One's story, one's future does not end in this moment. Their faith was not a destination, it was a discipline. So Vox, what does it look like to pursue God's truth about us and his promises for us, not only for our life, but our collective existence in this world? And as we go back to our reminder in the scripture today, these words, I believe, serve as that foundation of truth. How can we watch for his works, be alert to his presence, remember his wonders, whether it's the miracle of our lives or a lake on the mountain or the radical ways we continue to disrupt systems not made for us in pursuit of our collective freedom? And so the last question inquiry I put before us to reflect on is, what does it look like to pursue God's promises in the midst of fear? doubt and uncertainty? What does it look like for us to rely on the archive of promises, of promise keeping? What does it look like for us to tap into the energy and inspiration of the wonders that we have experienced? And as we close today, I want us to meditate on how we might keep these promises close and enduring. 
And we're going to do that through listening to this song that I think is simply and appropriately titled Promises. And so I invite you in this moment to let these words wash over you. And in whatever promise feels deterred, disrupted, for it to feel a little bit closer this morning. you to inhale, God, my hope trembles, and exhale, steady me as I wait. Inhale, the wait is long, and exhale, his breath, his promises endures. Amen. <laughs> 